Hey, and welcome to the teaching podcast of Calvary Chapel, Newcastle. At Cows, we like to keep things simple. We are committed to verse-by-verse teaching through the Bible to help people know, love, and become fully committed followers of Jesus. It is our prayer and hope that this message challenges, encourages, and equips you to that end. Testing, testing. How's that? All right. Good. Welcome along again. So thank you, Grant. Thanks for that. Um, It's quite a chunky text, isn't it? Um, Before we get into that, I just, do you remember the story? I just wanted to reflect for a second. The story of the centurion that comes to Jesus. Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but basically um, Jesus has, he's done the Sermon on the Mount. Um, You know, that's the the famous sermon of Jesus where he talks about the Beatitudes and um, this and that kind of thing. Um, And he does this Sermon on the Mount and he comes down the mountain, he heals a leper, according to Matthew's Gospel. Anyway, he heals this leper and then this interesting thing happens where this centurion comes along. And the centurion, a Roman soldier, effectively a, a leader of a, a group of Roman soldiers. And the centurion says, my servant is sick. You know, I need, some, I need you to come and heal my servants. And Jesus says, the centurion says, I'll, I'll come and heal him. Okay, no worries. Uh, and the centurion goes, no, 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 it's okay. So you don't need to come. I know how authority works. I know how this kind of thing works. I'm a, I'm a ruler of people myself. Just say the word uh, and I know that it's going to happen. All right. And do you remember Jesus' response when the centurion says that? Do you remember what he says? Never in all of Israel have I seen faith like this. Faith like this. And he, and he sees it in this guy who has, has grown up outside of Israel, outside of God's covenant people. Never in all of Israel have I seen faith like this. Um, and I think that the centurion really nails, nails it when he, he, he really recognises two important things. Number one, he recognises um, his position before Jesus because what he says, he says, oh, you can't come to my house. I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof, basically. I'm not worthy. He recognises his position um, as unworthy to be before the God of all creation. And he, and he says another thing. He says that thing about Jesus having authority. He recognises Jesus' authority. Um, and Jesus also says that in, in the future to come, interestingly, he says um, that there will be people coming from east and from west who will, become, who will be, come to the table to recline, in other words, to just to hang out and have a meal with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And this um, beautiful picture of these people who are outside of Israel coming and, and, and sharing uh, a meal with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, whereas there will be sons of Israel who are in utter darkness. And I think what this story really captures for us is this idea that there is a, a future coming in Jesus' time then that we, is even more apparent now, a future coming when, when the borders are expanding um, and it, it, we see a hint of this same picture back in Malachi, a hint of the same picture where, where there's this, this idea that God is doing more than just working with Israel. In fact, it's been his program the whole time. Israel, Israel was supposed to be a tool to reach the world. And, and, and Malachi hints of this future to come. And I think there's, there's really two 
um, lessons from this story that I, I think we're going to be having some answers for today. Number one, how do you have that kind of faith? How do you have that same kind of faith as a centurion who, who just didn't grow up in it, but who came and was more faithful than any Israelite? How do we have that kind of faith, number one? And number two, what's going to happen to the future Israel? The future for them in Malachi's time and the future for us now. So let's pray um, and we'll get into it. Father, we just thank you for today. Thank you for your word, which is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, even to penetrating between soul and spirit. God, would you do that now? Use your word as a sword to penetrate our hearts. May we be willing to be taught by you. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm going to recap a little bit. This is the, the fifth and final installment in the book of Malachi. Um, we've already seen that this was the last book of the Old Testament to be given to Israel. It was written about 430 years before Christ. Um, it was also 150 years after Judah had been exiled uh, under Babylon in 586 BC. And it was about 110 years after, you remember Cyrus, the king of Persia, comes in in 539 BC, he takes Jerusalem, and in 538 BC, he lets them come back. Um, so he takes them in 538 BC and lets them come back into the, into the promised land to rebuild the temple. So the temple's been finished for about 85 years um, before this point in time. After Malachi, we have silence in scripture. This is it. This is it for 430 years until Jesus comes onto the scene. In the meantime, Israel remains this kind of small, disputed state. It's, you know, attacked by the Greeks and the Persians, the Egyptians, um, pretty much anyone who's in that area, any big empire, Israel just comes under, this is what you know, Dan was saying, it comes under the, the, um, these empires um, with a really brief period of self-governance, but that was brief. Um, and Rome, of course, by the time of Christ. I guess the main theme that we've seen throughout this book is that God is faithful to his promises and covenants, despite the unfaithfulness of his people. As a sort of outline, what we'll be discussing today kind of easily divides into four sections if you've got your Bibles open in front of you. Malachi chapter 3. Um, the first is the, the sixth and final of these disputes, these disputes that John set up for us in week one that really form the bulk of the book of Malachi. Um, that's from 13 to 15. From 16 to 18, we'll be looking at this special group of people who buck the trend of faithlessness by actually remaining faithful to God. Um, from chapter 4, the first little section, it's a really, really short chapter, chapter 4. It's only six verses long. Actually, in the Hebrew Bible, it, there's no chapter 4. Chapter 3 just keeps going. Um, so we'll be looking at this, um, these two groups and, and I guess God's response to these two groups and how these, this response to these two groups really differs quite a lot from 16 to 18, uh, from 1 to 3, rather. Um, and then from 4 to 6, uh, we'll be finishing out the last three verses of the book, uh, looking at this intriguing and, and wonderful statement about the coming Elijah and what does that mean? What's in store for the future of Israel at this time uh, and what it means for us today as well? You remember from each of the guys who've been, who've been teaching Malachi that you know, these, these six disputes, as we said, um, I'm going to tweak that word dispute a little bit and say uh, it's not just a dispute, it's, it's really um, an error. 
an error of Israel. It's a failure of Israel in some key area in every one of those six disputes. What I find is interesting is God's response to each of these six errors. And I want to recap that really quickly because it really sets the scene for where we're at today. Um, John talked about in, in week one, he talked about from verses one to five, um, that they fail to recognise God's love for them. And, and what's God's response to that? Do you remember? He says, he promises to prove his love for them. In other words, God's response is grace. And in week two, um, Dave Dirks, he, he talked about, especially the spiritual leaders, but others as well, um, who are kind of failing in their honour and their, in their respect for God. He calls them to repent, um, God does, and to receive forgiveness. While he's still promising punishment for the hypocrite or the faithless leader, but he also says he'll show how great his name is in the world. In other words, grace is God's response and future grace to come. Dave Dean, in week three, the people are faithless to each other and to God. Remember that word bagat? Remember that one? Bagat, I had that running through my head all week after that. Bagat. Um, the Lord says he refused to listen while they persist in this state, but he advises people to heed their consciences. That's what he says, with the implication that he will turn and listen. In other words, God's response is grace. It's getting a bit repetitive. Then there was Dan. He did two disputes. He got the double, the double share. Sorry, mate. Um, these guys have, had, have done a great job, haven't they? I've been so blessed by, by these men. Um, I'm going to flip them for a second, okay? So we're going to start with dispute number five because it's more similar to the others. Dispute number five, basically, um, God accuses the people of withholding the tithes, withholding what they owe to God, and God pleads with them to get right. And what does he do? He offers restoration. So in other words, the response is grace. But if you back up to complaint number four, the people accuse God of injustice. And what it says in the text is, this wearies the Lord. He will send his messenger and none will stand. He will refine, he will come in judgment. Do you notice the difference there? God's reaction is intense and it kind of seems severe to me. What's the difference? Well, in this instant, the complaint against Israel is that they actually malign God's character. In every other example, it's just Israel failing, often in really big ways, but simply failing to do what they should. In this instance, it's Israel not only failing, but criticising God's character as a means of avoiding responsibility, calling his goodness evil. And God was severe in his response. You can still see a hint of grace in that, but the response is different. And similar to that fourth criticism, we begin today with the sixth and final dispute, one in which Israel again maligns God's character. So let's dive straight in. Malachi chapter 3, verse 13. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord, but you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain. And some translations say here, it is useless. And I think that's probably a better translation. We don't use the word vain very much in common English. It is useless to serve God. What is the profit of keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And how and now we call the arrogant blessed. Evil doers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. So you see here the people accuse God of impotence or worse of evil. Whereas last time in, in 2.17 they called God's righteousness into question, this time they're complaining against the justice of God. There are so many things wrong with the attitude expressed here. It's, it's difficult to even know where to start. They say it's useless to serve God. In other words, serving God doesn't seem to get them anywhere. 
serving God for them looks chiefly like, number one, keeping his charge, which is really keeping all the rules um, and all the requirements. And, and secondly, serving God is walking as in mourning. There's that phrase, walking as in mourning. It's an allusion to this kind of outward self-righteous religiousness that had been developing since the return from exile. Walking as in mourning, they're, they're wearing you know, black and wandering around. It was a part of their kind of religious expression that looked good on the outside. One thing to note here is that the people aren't actually talking to God about their complaints. So you see that? Have a look at the, have a look at the verbs and the way that they, they say. They say, t- instead, of, instead of saying, oh, you, God, are such and such, they say, it's pointless serving him. We need to take note of this fact because this should be a warning to us. God is listening to what we say about him. Not just when you're praying, but all the time. He hears not only your clear opinions about him, but the implications you make about him in your statements. When we complain against God, when we say it's not fair, when we resent our service of him, we're making a statement about his character. So that warning on board, let's go back to the specific complaints that they were making. See, first, there was this false notion that there was to be some sort of immediate and physical blessing as a result result of keeping all the rules and, and going through the motions. And when it didn't happen, it was proof to them of the uselessness of serving God. Fair enough? I don't know. Second, not only was serving God unprofitable, they say, but the opposite was true. The arrogant, that word arrogant, um, if you look at the, the Brown Driver Briggs Dictionary, um, the word could accurately be translated as rebellious or as godless. Rebellious or godless. So the godless are the blessed ones, they're the happy ones. People are running around doing evil and prospering from it and God doesn't lift a finger to stop them. Better to be like them, they conclude. This really demonstrates that the people I think have missed the point in a number of ways. Number one, we don't serve God to get something here and now. We serve God because he's God. And yes, there are blessings, but God has made it clear over and over that the immediate blessings are not material. And the material blessings are not immediate for his people at any age or program, whether that's Israel or the church. I'll say it again, the immediate blessings are not material and the material blessings are not immediate for the, in the economy of God. Number two, we don't give to get. It's so important to nail down because it's the basis of so much prosperity-driven false teaching that we hear today. We don't give to God so that we'll get more back. That's not how it works. It's just perverse. We give because we've already received. We give because it's all his anyway, Right? God promises his people in the Old Testament over and over again, but most recently in verses 7 to 12 above, that he will give them what they need if they return to him. He will give them what they need. And there's a part of his dispensational truth, um, this truth of the way that God works with different people at different times, that, that God is working in a special way through Israel at that time, prior to the church age. And so there is this sense of material um, well-being that God offers but even then you see that when it talks about tithe giving, tithe giving, it was to be the result of a relationship. Not the other way around. So tithe giving came out of relationship with God. You didn't get relationship with God by giving tithes. Yeah? And for the church, Jesus also said, if you seek first my kingdom, all these things will be added to you. 
That's as far as it goes for the believer. This side of our eschatological future, the future of our end times, in terms of promises of material blessing. Paul said, do you remember what he said? He says, I have learnt to be content with little and with much. Our current material state says nothing about our spiritual position. Nothing. And to the people's complaints about God, nowhere does God say that the wicked might not prosper for a season. When it happens, it will always be a part of God's purposes. Our God is sovereign over all things. So there's some real heart issues here, aren't there? First, they miss, they miss the eternal perspective. And what about me? What about you? Are we tempted just to look at the here and now? Are we able to see God's eternal perspective? When we're strapped for cash and we see some family who we know cheat on their taxes, we know they make insurance claims that are fraudulent and they seem to be living large. Can we fall back on the knowledge that our God is continuing to use us here and now in our current situation? That there is a reward for faithfulness and for sacrifice, but it comes later. Can we exercise eternity-informed patience? And the second lesson that these people miss is the accurate now perspective. What actually is on offer now in following God? They say that following God is walking as in mourning. So they've chosen two things that characterise their view of the life of faith. Number one, it's outward religiosity. And number two, it's a depressive or like a sad sack kind of outlook. No doubt there's a place for grief. There's a place for repentance. There's a place for sadness in our life of faith. To say otherwise is just ridiculous. But it's not the whole picture. Have you ever known people who have a wrong idea of what it means to follow God? I mean, you see it all the time in movies, in, um, in pop culture. You know, Christians are these, are these killjoys. They, they, they're kind of the Eeyores of life. They, they wander around moping and complaining. They're wearing black and they're, you know, frowning at you all the time and all this stuff. This is this kind of idea that the world gives you what, what a Christian looks like. I think this view really demonstrates a lack of understanding of the inherent joy and peace that accompany our relationship with God. Then again, maybe it's us who've given the wrong impression. We're going to hear in a minute God's response to, to this besmirching of his character a couple of verses later. But first, we have this incredible little this sidetrack into this contrasting group of people who feared the Lord, it says, uh, which will take us uh, to close out chapter 3. Let's have a look. Verse 16. Those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. So we can observe here as we move into verse 16, there's such a contrast, can't we, with the preceding groups on display. There is this group of people who fear the Lord, and not only that, they, they spoke to each other about it. They got together. And we can assume fairly, I think, that instead of moaning about how unfair it all is, they spoke to each other as people of faith. They encouraged each other in the things of the Lord. They talked about the goodness of God. So what does it mean to fear God? We hear this a bit. I mean, some commentators would say that it just means to, to respect someone greatly. 
and I think that's true. I think that is the essence of what it means to fear someone, is to respect them greatly. Um, but I don't think we should miss the fact that there is a literal sense of fear inherent in the word fear, which is why it continues to be translated as fear in most translations and not just respect. I think what we'd say is that those who fear the Lord are not characterised by fear, but they do possess fear of the Lord. Why? Well, in the same way that a sensible person possesses a fear of fire, a faithful person possesses fear of the Lord because they're aware of his awesome power, of his perfect justness and their own failure. But it doesn't stop at fear. A child can possess a healthy fear of his father's discipline. But they can still give him a cuddle and a kiss goodnight. And we know one, one other thing about this group from the next few verses is that they esteemed God's name, it says. The concept of the name was just such a, an important concept in ancient Near Eastern culture at that time. Not only was there meaning to the name that you had at birth, um, for, and we were unusual. We chose names that meant something for our children. We, had, we kind of thought a lot about the meaning as we, as we named them, which, um, and every time I meet you know, a new person has an interesting name, oh, what does that mean? Um, but that's not common in our culture. In, in Hebrew culture, that was very common to, to choose a characteristic that you wanted to talk about in that name. But not only that, but, but your name was your reputation. Your name was your reputation. We see echoes of that fact through culture today. Um, when we say things like, your name will be mud, you know, it means that you, it's not like your name is literally going to be mud. Your reputation will be very, very bad. Or, or she's a big name in the field of X, Y, Z. So, so we need to take that concept and understand that to esteem someone's name is to protect their reputation with others. So not only were these people talking with each other about the goodness of God, they were reaching into the community with the true picture of who it is that they were serving. That's a really cool picture for us. So how does God respond to this group? Number one, God listens, it says. He listens, he says, I've listened to you, I've heard you. We have this tendency, I think, sometimes, I know I do, I might be the only one, but to believe that since God is kind of perfectly gracious and he's unchanging, um, he's just going to respond the same way to everybody, to every believer even, you know. Um, but I think someone must have forgotten to tell that to the writers of Scripture or to God himself because this is not how he behaved. It's not what happens. See, it says the Lord paid attention and then the Lord heard them. And just in case you think that it's just an Old Testament thing and it doesn't apply today, check out these verses. Number, number one, First Peter chapter 3, verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. John 15, 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. James 5.16 Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you might be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. His truth remains true for us today. And God's second response to this group of faithful people, he added their name to his book of remembrance. So what is this book of remembrance? Well, see, ancient kings, they didn't use LinkedIn. They didn't use Google to search the awesome things that somebody had done. They had to write down what this person had done 
and so they could remember to give them rewards later on. You know, Joe Bloggs saves the princess and the king goes, oh, I've got to remember that, you know, Joe Bloggs, Joe Bloggs is in the, in, in the book. And then later on, a few years down the track, the king's wandering along and he sees Joe Bloggs lying in a ditch. He says, Joe Bloggs, why are you lying in a ditch? And Joe Bloggs, you know, tells his woe story. And then God says, well, you know what, you like, you rescued my, the book here says you rescued my daughter. Come on, I'll, I'll put you in a house and give you some stuff. Okay, so that's the picture. This is, this is what the ancient Near East kings did. They, they had these books of remembrance. Um, it's not like God needs a book to remember who we are. It's clearly an analogy, right? But God's basically saying, I will never forget you. I will rightly judge you. There is reward for what you've done. There is reward for your faithfulness in a culture of godlessness. And God's third response, that though we made, verse 17, a special possession, that's the Hebrew word segula, segula, a special possession. It's, it's used um, of all of Israel in, for the first time in Exodus 19, four, um, after the Exodus, and, and God says, you will be my segula, you'll be my, my special possession, my treasure. But it's also used of King David, of his treasure in First Chronicles. But it's not just any treasure. It's not just like your wealth. The segula is actually a special treasure. It's like it's got, uh, it's got both kind of special value to the person as well as being inherently valuable. So it's, it's, it's both of these things. It's like you have that little box at home of the things that you had when you were a kid. These are your segula. They, they have, you know, real special value. I'm guessing most people have something like that, you know. We're not all callous. Um, that's, that's what we are to God. We are that, that special possession. So God promises that not only will he hear and he'll remember these people, he will protect them from what is to come, it says. Protect them as if they were a close son even, like, like the son who stays home to care for his aging father. That's that kind of closeness that's on display here. But we get a little hint here too of the judgment that's to come. And this kind of gives us a segue back into the preceding topic of the people who failed in serving God and instead were complaining about him. Malachi contrasts these two groups. In verse 18, then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. And then flowing straight into chapter 4, we see the response to the faithful contrasted to God's response to the godless. For one, for behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze as the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. It's heavy. Huh? And although not 100% certain, given the use of fire and the, and the target of the arrogant or the godless and the evildoers, it's likely that this is referencing the great white throne judgment of Revelation 20 which happens after the thousand-year reign of Christ on earth, where the wicked are resurrected to account for their lives shortly after the final defeat of Satan. I mean, it's possible that there would be some, even in this room, who would find themselves right now in that group. This group of people who have not come to put their trust in the one true God. And I'm not one of these fire and hell and brimstone kind of breaches. I don't, don't jibe with that. But my prayer is that by the time we finish today, that anyone in that group will no longer be in that group. For the rest of us, how seriously do we, say, do we take this? 
This is reality. That judgment is coming for all people. Are those that you know at work, at school, in your families, are they ready to face God's judgment? How urgent are we to be bringing people to know the truth of what God has done? Because this doesn't have to be the story for them. There is another option to judgment, and it's right here in the next verse. Verse 2, For you who fear my name, this is that group of faithful people, for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. It's so clearly messianic. It's impossible to miss. Remember that God is wrapping up the Old Testament here. It would be the last word for 400 years, and he wants people to know that the Messiah is coming. But like so many messianic prophecies, we see this near-far fulfillment. In this case, both fulfillments will be in the same person, that is in Jesus, but they will be separated by, well, at least 2,000 years. You see, this side of the cross, we know that Jesus has already come with healing in his wings. There are numerous places where God is spoken of in the Old Testament as being a planet or a star, but this time it's a whole new level. The sun itself is the picture on display. The sun brings healing on its wings. Those wings, the wings are a picture of the, the rays of the sun. It brings healing, but it also brings light. We were trying to put a, a planter box together yesterday to plant some trees in like a timber planter box. Um, and the sun kind of started to drop down over the horizon and all of a sudden it started getting pretty dark. And we're there with these kind of drills, and these screws that you know this big in the middle of a paddock and trying to put these screws in. We didn't have a source of light other than on the drill. So we're kind of like light, light spinning, light, light spinning, you know, and you're trying to do everything. And it was really, really difficult. We got like one done in, I don't know, an hour or something like that. Um, and it wasn't a difficult, it was like easier than Ikea. Um, but then this morning, the kids were doing it in less time than it took Kendall and I to do it in the dark. There's something about light that makes everything a bit easier, hey? And that's what Jesus is bringing. That's what Jesus has brought. He's brought light to the situation. It's, it's kind of reminiscent, isn't it, of John's gospel when it says, you know, um, uh, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. Um, and it goes on later to say, you know, God became flesh and dwelt among men. The Word became flesh and dwelt among men. Um, and, and it talks about he came into the world as light into the darkness. And it says the darkness could not Taliban, they could not hold him, could not grasp him. The darkness couldn't grasp him. They had, they, the darkness had no purchase on the light that is Jesus. Jesus has won. And then you see not only light but freedom for these people. The, the calves are leaping from the stall. It says, I don't know if you've ever seen a calf put onto fresh, fresh pasture. Um, we, we do it every now and then. When, you know, when you move them into a new paddock and it's maybe they've, they've eaten all the good grass and you see them come out into a new paddock and um, some of the guys will, will recognise this, but they just leap. They leap around, they jump around and they, they're like dancing and they, they nibble a bit of grass and they do a bit more dancing and they, and they kind of kicking their legs in the air. And It's a really cool picture of, of what happens when you let a calf out of the stall. There's this freedom, this inherent sense of, yes, I'm in a new place and it's free. 
Um, and this is a picture that God gives for his people of faith. I think the complete fulfillment of this promise is still yet future. We won't be truly free. We won't be truly there in terms of complete presence of the light of God until the new heaven and the new earth. But we again see judgment for the wicked put in direct contrast to the faithful. This analogy of trampling their ashes seems kind of barbaric to our modern minds, doesn't it? Um, but this was the people who were used to war. They knew that so often it was in life it was the arrogant and the even people who were trampling over the righteous. That was their experience. And it remains so, I think, to this day. God's saying, just be patient. It won't be that way forever. You will win. And so we move into verse 4, the final parting words of God to his people. Remember the law of my servant Moses, he says, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. A couple of just clarification points before we wrap up the application. Remember that we're talking about that near-far fulfilment? I think this is what we've got here with Elijah. John the Baptist, the cousin of Jesus, who also prepared the way for Jesus in his earthly ministry, was identified by Jesus himself as being Elijah, kind of, at least in some sense. But we know here that Elijah comes before the great and awesome day of the Lord, it says. So we are still looking for a more complete fulfilment to come. And there's this other interesting character who's not directly named in the text. And we see him as one of the, one of the if you, you know, say, it's still to come. Hold that thought for a second. Now, shoot over to Revelation chapter 11. Okay? And you've got these two characters who are wandering around. I don't know, do you remember this story? These two characters are wandering around at the end times. Um, and they're, they're calling people to repentance before the great and terrible day of the Lord, interestingly enough. So I think that it fits so well with this verse. We can, we can picture that one of these two people is Elijah, probably, but there's more evidence. Um, one of the people has the authority to cause plagues, which sounds a lot like Moses, doesn't it? And the other, to shut up the sky so that it doesn't rain. Now, who does that sound like? That sounds like Elijah. Plus, do you remember where Moses and Elijah, for us right now, do you remember the last time Moses and Elijah were last seen together? Transfiguration. So they're there together. It fits the bill, I think, quite well. But there's something else to notice in this passage as well. Malachi, he, he kind of points back to the, to the past, to the time of Moses. What happened at Mount Horeb? Do you remember? It's where the Ten Commandments were given to Moses. And when did that happen? It happened right after the Exodus. God's saying, look, Israel, I brought you out of Egypt. I fed you. I gave you the pillar of fire. I protected you. I gave you my law. I made you special for the sake of my witness. I led you into the promised land. Remember these things. I protected you. Remember me. I looked after you. Remember me. I chose you, remember me. But then Malachi seems to close it in an unusual way. In fact, the Masoretes, that group of people who, who copied a lot of what we have, uh, of the, you know, the Dead Sea Scrolls and this thing, they, they would copy the fifth verse. Actually, no, they were after that. But they copied the, the Hebrew Bible. They were a group of, of Jew, Jewish people who would 
copy the, the Jewish text, they actually put the fifth verse again after the sixth verse. Because to them it seemed kind of a bit gloomy to finish the Old Testament on the sixth verse, which talks about judgment. But I don't think that's actually necessary. Look again and I think you'll see, in fact, we're finishing on God's grace. See, it says, lest I come and strike the land. What does lest mean? It means so that, you know, when we say lest we forget, we're talking about the Anzacs, lest we forget. It says so that we don't forget. So what God's saying is, is so that I don't come and strike the land. He's telling them what they need to do. It sounds like judgment, but it's actually another picture of God's grace. God's saying, I'm sending Elijah to stop the utter destruction. I'm sending Elijah so that my chosen people will turn again, not only to each other. As one commentator said, the turning of children to their fathers is a picture of Israel returning to the faith of their ancestors. We know that this side of the cross, that the only thing that would save is God's grace, apprehended by faith. What those of Malachi, Malachi's time didn't know is that though the apprehension of their salvation was through faith, the mechanism of their salvation was Jesus as it is for us today. The blood of bulls and goats, the Old Testament says, could never take away the sins of man. Only the sacrifice of the perfect God-man can make that possible, once for all time, for all people. So says Malachi in summary, not just of today's text, but of the whole book. Remember, remember the Exodus. Remember that I protected you. Remember that I saved you again and again despite your faithfulness. Remember that I led you into the promised land and gave you victory after victory, that I sent you my messengers. I mean, how could they possibly forget? How could they forget God's faithfulness? It's all around them. It's so obvious at every turn. And the answer, well, how did I forget? What God did for me in pulling me out of a life of self-obsessed, lust-driven, people-pleasing madness, that he forgave me, that he kept on forgiving, that he used me in spite of my failures, and he continues to use me. Calvary Chapel, Newcastle, let's not forget what God has done for us. Let's remember what God continues to do for us. And along with those who feared God in Malachi's day, when all others complained and got caught in their own concerns and anxieties, they skimped on their giving, they, they were faithless to one another, they failed to teach their children God's ways. Along with those who remain faithful, even when it seems hopeless, let's keep remembering God. Let's talk about him to one another. Let's be aware of our place in the book of life and our future hope, whilst also enjoying what God has for us today, in his way, in his timing, in his plan. Why? Because God is faithful. God is faithful. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness, despite our faithlessness. But we ask that you would keep us remembering Lord, keep us reminding each other too. Help us to be a group of faithful people in a sea of godlessness. And would you use us to reach the world for your purposes? Lord, as Israel awaited the coming Messiah, we are on the other side of that. The Messiah has come. And it's a privilege 
to be able to be a part of your family, Lord God. Use us, we pray. Go before us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the teaching podcast of Calvary Chapel, Newcastle. If you'd like to check out more of our teachings, please visit ccn.org.au forward slash teachings.